it's old timey crimey. Hooray! Uh, we're back. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we have quite the tale to tell you today about the millionaire orphan. The millionaire orphan. Do you want to just dive right in? Yeah, let's do it. I kind of do, yeah, because this is quite the case. There's a lot here. Um, and I'm going to be quoting a book by Virginia McConnell a lot in here, but I'm not going to tell the title because it's a little spoilery. So this is the William McClintock case, also known as the case of all the Williams. There's oh. so many Williams. I actually started calling him Billy in my notes. Oh, same here. He's Billy throughout my notes, yeah. <laughs> because he, his father was William McClintock. His mother's name was Emma Catherine Nelson, and they had Billy in Chicago on April 3rd, 1903. Now, some stuff about his parents, because that is really important here. His father was uh, what he called a retired capitalist. In the 1890s, he had married a woman who had herself been widowed and left a large fortune from her husband, who had been a lumberman and had owned a lot of real estate. So her husband died, and then eventually William McClintock met her and married her. He was around 36. She was 69. So a little bit of uh, May-December action here. Well, and I believe that he was also working as her secretary. Something along those lines, yeah. Uh, And I, I think those... Speaking of lines, I think they got a little blurry there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to hire this young buck as my personal secretary, and it got real personal. <laughs> real personal. In 1897, she passed away, and so William McClintock Sr. inherited her money. She didn't have any kids, but she did have some nieces and nephews. They contested because she left the whole of it to William McClintock. Amounting to, uh, most newspapers said about 600000 which today would be, uh, fifth, sorry, $115 million, uh, received as compensation. Wow. They said she was 74, she wasn't in her right mind, she was easily influenced at the time of her death. And really, I think he basically like paid them some money or settled out of court to make them go away. And then he proceeded to build upon this fortune by investing in real estate. And then in the early 1900s, he married Emma Catherine Nelson. Now, she had been his wife's nurse. Oh, we we don't care about those lines. We really don't. We really, the, the lines are not important. We can just push them aside. So yeah, that definitely, uh, there's, there's something going on here with that. And within a year, they had little Billy. Uh, Virginia McConnell tells us that this was the first time that any heir to this fortune actually had a child and an heir themselves, Mm -hmm. which is really, really something. Now, in 1907, William McClintock Sr., with his son only four years old, passed away in an automobile accident. He was 49 or 50. What happened was his car spooked a horse and then that, the wagon attached to that horse hit him and killed him. Here from the newspaper, in a collision between his automobile and a Parmalee wagon, William McClintock, a retired capitalist who lived at 2226 Calumet Avenue, was almost instantly killed yesterday afternoon. His wife and little son were with him, but they escaped with no injuries. 
The, the accident was due to the confusion of William Pennington, driver of the Parmalee wagon, who twice pulled his horse in front of the machine and frustrated Mr. McClintock's efforts to dodge him. Mrs. McClintock and Mr. Krieg say the automobile was going slowly. And it turns out that he basically threw his body in front of the wagon shaft because otherwise it was going to hit his wife, Emma. And meanwhile, she was also protecting their son. The headline was, Dies to Save His Wife. Mr. McClintock's death bordered on the heroic. According to the police report, he threw himself in the way of the shaft, which otherwise would have struck his wife. Her escape, however, was largely due to her presence of mind. As the second shaft of the express wagon veered towards her, she swept her little boy down into the tonneau of the machine with one hand, and the other grasped the wagon shaft, which shot upward toward her shoulder. So McClintock was still alive when he was taken to the hospital, but they took him into surgery, and he died on the operating table about 30 minutes in. Wow. Yes. So now the fortune goes to Emma. Mm-hmm. And she didn't even have it all untangled and figured out yet when she passed away herself in 1909, just two years after, from uh, what was suspected to be heart disease. And basically the newspapers are talking a lot about Billy at this point in time because he's very much a figure of interest. He's like five years old or 1903, six years old. And the heir to this enormous fortune. And one of their attorneys uh, said that little William McClintock has no relatives in Chicago. And while no definite plans have been made for his future, attorney Reichman said he probably would be taken to Kansas where his mother's family reside. Mrs. McClintock lived simply, said Mr. Reichman, both during her husband's life and afterwards. Mr. McClintock was much older than she, he being 66 years old at the time of his death, while Mrs. McClintock was only 38 years old. They get the ages wrong all over this case. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. The child has been brought up quietly and has been much of his time with his mother, either in Chicago or at their winter home in Texas. He is a fine, sturdy little fellow, and it is sad to think of his being left alone while he is so young. And uh, said probably he would be ending up going to Topeka to Mrs. McClintock's family. At this point, this fortune has grown to the extent that I, I think it's exaggerated, but I don't know by how much because it's at six million dollars, or possibly three million dollars. Six million uh, is what they put in like every freaking paper. Yeah, and this is terrifying because they put in a picture of mother and son. He is five, and it says five-year-old boy who oddly falls heir to six million dollars. It names him. It says where he lives. It says he is five years old. It says he is the heir. It has his freaking picture, and they published this in every paper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody was protecting him from terrible bad things that could have happened, especially like a child and... Granted, this was before the kidnapping craze of the 20s and 30s, but I'm shocked he wasn't kidnapped. I am shocked. too, because how easy would it be to just kidnap this kid? You yeah. see his picture. You have his address. Plain as day. You know where he lives. <laughs> this is this is an easy, easy crime. So, so yeah, um, he's basically the, the star of the press. Uh, at first, it seems like they uh, they're trying to go easy on him. At his home, William romped and played and 
wondered what his elders were whispering about in such sad tones, for the harshness of the news of his parents' death had been softened by kindly statements of the family. But within a couple weeks, they, they, he's basically, it's sunk in. He probably figured out that his mom is not there anymore. Yeah, yeah, and he, this is rather heartbreaking. They tell him that through his mother's death, he had inherited $6 million and had become one of the richest children in the world. I don't want money, was the pathetic response of the little fellow. I want my mama back. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? And he's a little kid. There was this idea that he was going to go to Kansas, but then it seems like within a few weeks, that changes, and it's announced that he will have a guardian, and that is Mrs. Julia Shepard. And she'd also been gifted $5,000 in the will of his mother. Now, the death was in the summer, and by fall of that year, there's this whole custody battle that has drawn even more press attention, naturally. The will had named both Julia Shepard and the attorney Reichman as his sort of co-guardians. They were both friends of the family. Uh, quote, one who was an intimate friend of the father and the other a companion of the mother. So attorney Reichman had been a friend of William McClintock Sr.'s and Julia Shepard had been a pal from the school days of Emma McClintock. But I like that. I like that they have it split like that. So now you have the best interest from both sides and one person can't completely take advantage of it because there's another. So like, yeah, maybe Julia would be great to like help rear him. But Attorney Riker can make sure that they don't abuse that that fund of his and use it for things that don't go to him. Yeah, you can have more of a balance of power instead of one person having it all. This is the setup. It's not quite working well yet. Reichman is not really on board with this whole sharing the guardianship thing. And he says that Julia Shepard, quote, uh, is not the best person to direct the early training of the little millionaire. The Shepherds are in their early and mid-30s. Reichman's in his 40s. So, you know, age doesn't really have any factor there. And like I said, she is married. And she's married to William, of course. Darling Shepherd. Some people call him Darl, which I hate. So I won't be doing that. <laughs> Darl. It does not roll off the tongue. It gets stuck on the tongue. Yeah, it's like Daryl, but I forgot a letter. And... Yeah. So weird. Ever since Mrs. McClintock's death, Julia and William Shepherd had been living at the McClintock home on Calumet Avenue with Billy. You have these two fighting for custody, and then another kink in the work comes along. 75-year-old carpenter from Iowa named C.E. Eaton. And he's reportedly Mr. McClintock's half-brother. He's declared to be Billy's nearest living relative. And he's also trying to get custody or just even make a claim of $10,000 against the estate, which is a pretty big estate. That's a the tiny portion of it. He says that when his half-brother was 19, he gave William money to go off and get himself started in life, get some education, start his business career. And it really seems like he made a, a good go of it. <laughs> you know, married rich, that worked. And uh, he said, C.E. Eaton said, quote, After my brother left me, I never knew what had become of him until I read that he had been killed in an automobile accident. He promised to repay me the money I spent for his education and what I furnished him later when he began his business career. He was lost to me for 40 years. 
basically William McClintock just took the money and ran off and then never contacted his brother again. Yeah, it seems like they were close. Yeah, and he, he helped you a great deal, basically gave you a start in life. What they had discussed as payment would be William would come back home someday and take care of their mother, and, and he refused to do that, even though he had said he would. As far as the shepherds are concerned, uh, here is this basically history of William Shepherd. Okay, so we're going to learn a little bit more about him from basically the, the inquiry into this case. William Shepard, the woman's husband, was made to give in detail an account of his various occupations since he was a soldier in the Spanish-American War until he became a resident with his wife at the home of Mrs. McClintock and was employed to advise her in making real estate loans. Close inquiry was made into the kind of homes owned by Shepard's relatives in Indiana where the boy was taken for visits during the summer. The boy himself seemed to be the least interested of any in court. As much as it's kind of appalling how much um, attention is being put under this child who can't understand what's going on, uh, it also can, has its adorable moments. <laughs> so I, I get kind of torn up about it. I'm like, well, on the one hand, that's a lot for any child to go through. But on the other hand, cute. Yeah. <laughs> so they're really examining the shepherd's behavior with the money and their, their treatment of Billy. They are starting to look at a trip that Julia Shepard made with Billy to Colorado over the summer because uh, two reasons. It was against a doctor's orders, and also they were questioning her expenditures, so something seemed a little weird there. Yeah, I'm going to spend a lot of money to take a little boy somewhere that they don't want me to take him, and we're just going to have a grand old time. Mm-hmm. They're investigating that. They're, they're trying to get a handle on what the shepherd's relationship with Mrs. McClintock really was. They quiz Mr. Shepherd on that in court. And this is, this is something, okay? This is, was said in court to people. I'm going to just do the back and forth because that's basically how this is written. And what were some of the things you did after you went into her employ? I was given the entire custody of the boy, drove Mrs. McClintock about in the automobile, and advised her concerning speculations in mortgages and real estate. In caring for the boy, just what did you do for him? I was with him constantly, and often I was asked to spank him. You were a sort of royal spanker then? I never really spanked him, although he was nervous and fretful and often deserving of it. That, that, that's a thing that someone sat in a courtroom and said with their mouth. And that a judge gave custody of a young boy who was afraid of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I wonder why he's nervous and fretful. I can't imagine. This is the guy that hits me. Yeah, yeah. And oh, by the way, my parents are dead. <laughs> like, and the press is everywhere I go. He was paid $200 a month for that. Today received as a compensation, that would be $31,000 a month. So not really enough to live on, but, um, I mean, for just spanking, I guess it's a, a good living. I mean, you know, you can get a luxury here or there, like the good ramen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Is that the good ramen now, the guy that spanks? Yeah. You can drive me around and spank me every once in a while. <laughs> I'll get to the good ramen. I want some good ramen. So, uh, Julia and William Shepard, I want some good ramen, too. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, they tell the press that the estate... Money, none of that matters to them. So they do this big interview 
with the newspapers and have Billy like talking to the papers too and everything. And so this is what uh, he has to say. But my wife, or not Billy, but William Shepard. But my wife and I have no interest whatever in the estate. Mrs. Shepard's guardianship is merely of the child and she has nothing whatever to do with the fortune. Just before Mrs. McClintock died, she took both of my hands and hers, said Mrs. Shepard, and told me she wanted me to care for little Billy. I had known her all my life, and I loved the boy. That is the reason I am fighting in the courts to keep him. I have no interest in the fortune. I have been allowed $400 a month for the expenses of the boy and have kept within that allowance. So within that same interview, like I said, we get to chat with Billy a little bit. Billy the millionaire orphan. And I'm sorry, this is a long conversation they have with him, long-ish as far as quotes are concerned, but it's pretty cute. During the interview, he sat in a great upholstered divan, divan? I don't know, into which he sank so deeply that it seemed as if he might not be able to recover him and his legs. Instead of extending downward, stuck straight out like two fat little pins. <laughs> I know, right? The interview took place in the big old-fashioned house where he lives with Mr. and Mrs. Shepherd. When I'm older, said Billy, I expect to be a locomotive engineer. He ran his dimpled hand through his brown locks. And I shall not have curly hand. Hair. Curly hair. <laughs> shall not have these curly hands. <laughs> and I shall not have curly hair. His hair at present is very curly. You will, of course, have charge of a 20th century train, the interviewer asked. I shall take my train over the mountains, he answered. The high mountains, the mountains covered with snow. Then I shall go through Texas. Having delivered himself of these remarks, he suddenly became covered with confusion and hid his sensitive, delicate little face in his hands. I've got a bank made like a dog, and I put pennies in it every week, he remarked after recovering from his momentary embarrassment. The reporter had half expected to refer to this part of the interview as his views on finance, but suddenly Billy became an extremely little boy, no less in look than in speech. I have lots of money, he said quite happily. I buy a bat, an engine, a dolly, and some candy. I spend sometimes 25 cents a week. That is with what I put in my bank. So that's adorable. That is adorable. <laughs> They're like, we want to talk to you about money. He's like, I'm going to be a locomotive engineer and go over the mountains. I'm going to drive the choo-choo train. <laughs> and my hair won't be curly anymore. <laughs> yeah. So we had this idea that... Emma McClintock basically had Julia Shepard give her a deathbed promise to take care of her son. Attorney Reichman has something similar, uh, his own version. If anything should happen to me, I want you to stand between the world and that little boy of mine, Billy. This was a pledge William McClintock, shortly before his death, exacted from Alexander Reichman, to, according to the latter's testimony in Judge Cutting's court yesterday. So they each have a deathbed promise from one of the parents. Mm -hmm. I like his better. I want you to stand between the world and my son and make sure my son is okay. I yeah. like that. Yes, exactly. I like that. Stand between the world and my little boy. You're, you're his shield. Ugh. But Julia Shepard has testimony from a, a friend as well. Her friend, Mrs. James H. Ohm. She's really laying it on thick. I'll say that much. I have never in my life seen anything more beautiful, said Mrs. Stone, than the way Mr. and Mrs. Shepherd are bringing up the little boy. He goes to bed at 8.30 every night of his life, and Mrs. Shepherd lies down beside him. Mr. Shepherd reads to him from the Bible. Then they all repeat the Lord's Prayer together. 
After which Billy says his own little prayer of now I lay me down to sleep and God bless mama, God bless papa, and God bless everybody. I was with Mrs. William McClintock just before she died when Mrs. Shepard arrived from Texas. The two women put their arms around each other and Mrs. Shepard said, oh, I'm so sorry. If we had known you were so sick, we certainly would have come. Then she said, have you made any provisions for Billy? Mrs. McClintock said, yes. Mrs. Shepard wished to know what it was and Mrs. McClintock said, you are to have him. The two women looked at each other for a moment, then Mrs. Shepard rushed out of the room. It's a weird ending to that interaction, but that the whole is. story feels... Like, so, say I'm dying, and I'm like, Christy, I want you to take my kids. And then you're like, oh. and then you run away. <laughs> I'm going to be like, all right, that's a no. Let me call Beast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty clear no, running away. Well, and I feel like if I did ask you to take my kids, you would run away. So, like, that's why I used you for that example. I mean, I love You're your like, kids. But, yes, I, I absolutely would. I Don't get me wrong. I love your children. Small doses. Small I, doses, yeah. yeah. Not living in my house. <laughs> so, in the end, the probate judge says that the custody agreement will remain as outlined in the will. And he orders uh, the shepherds to make one change. They need to move out of the Calumet Avenue home and get a place that's closer to Attorney Reichman. They were about 30 miles apart. And Reichman lived in uh, Kenilworth. So she gets physical custody. And he, the attorney, gets to direct the boy's education. So they both have, you know, a say in some aspect of his life. Billy, bleh, Billy went to New Trier Township High in his teen years. That's one of the top high schools in the country. And it was there that he met the lovely Isabel Pope. She was his age, had blue eyes, blonde hair, and she was a bubbly, happy girl who would end up being voted most graceful girl in their class superlatives. Ooh. I know, most graceful girl. I've never even seen that <laughs> as one of those. Um, they started dating officially in 1920, but it seemed like all along, something had been brewing there. And then they graduated high school in 1921. Actually, they graduated high school with Ralph Bellamy. You probably have no idea who that is, but I guarantee you've seen him. That actually sounds familiar. He has been in tons of films, uh, from His Girl Friday with Cary Grant in 1940 to Pretty Woman in 1990. Oh. He was uh, the old man who had the company that Richard Gere originally wanted to break up. Oh. And they go out to dinner, and there's the oysters, and uh, that's an irony. <laughs> and, you know, Julia Roberts, like, accidentally flings one of the oysters across the room, and she says, slippery little suckers. <laughs> He's there. 50-year career. That's impressive. It's really something. So they graduated with Mount Ralph Bellamy, and then they went off to college. She went to Northwestern to study education, and he went to Dartmouth to learn how to be a millionaire, I guess. <laughs> hmm. Now, Isabel was doing pretty well at school, but Billy couldn't quite say the same thing. Uh, he was partying enough that he managed to get himself put on academic probation pretty much every semester. His entire college career was uh, being on probation. <laughs> Oopsie. You know, he's a... Uh, millionaire. School's He's, not for everyone. He doesn't really need to, to learn how to go make a living. He's already got the money. He just needs to learn how to keep the money. 
that's what most millionaires do is they learn how to keep their money. <laughs> Isabel finished up at Northwestern and she got herself a job teaching kindergarten, which is very cute. Very cute. And like it helps you kind of paint the picture of what kind of person she is. Because like imagine, just think of every kindergarten teacher mm-hmm. you've ever known. Yeah, there you go. And <laughs> you've got her pinned down. Yeah. So he uh, would have been going into his uh, final year at Dartmouth, but he decided to leave and started up at a business school in Chicago. Basically, it was he was going to learn how to manage the estate, how to keep the money. They got engaged. Everybody pretty much knew it was a foregone conclusion, you know, but uh, it seemed like everybody was was happy and, and celebratory. They had discussions about getting married in the summer of 1925. Billy wanted to move the wedding up. Uh, Isabel, she wanted to get through at least one semester at her new job first, you know, and at least have something of a career before settling down because that was pretty much, again, a foregone conclusion. A lot of teacher contracts, actually, uh, marriage could end them. Yeah. So that's it, you know. But Billy really wanted to get married, so they compromised, and they changed it to February 1925. Now, these two were inseparable. They would commute together. He would pick her up in his car, and then she'd drop him at the train for his business classes. She'd take the car to her job, and then they both finished up around the same time, around 1 p.m., so they would have lunch and then have a nice afternoon to look forward to. It really does sound like a lovely life. That is lovely. Yeah. And uh, if they were apart, they would send each other copious letters. Copious, copious letters. Multiple a day, sometimes. She, she said in one letter, I've had three letters from you today. <laughs> it's, That's super sweet. It is. They, they really wanted to be part of each other's lives. And they were very much embedded in each other's lives. And in each other's hearts. Getting sappy. Aww. <laughs> so um, he turned 21 and came into his majority on April 3rd, 1924. And that was the day he signed his will, which uh, in it he bequeathed to his affianced wife, Isabel Pope, $8,000 per year for the term of her life. And he said, I make this bequest as a token of the love and affection I have for her and as a proper protection for her until such time as our marriage shall be consummated. And then all of the rest of his property of whatever description, both real and personal, is uh, then bequeathed to William Shepard. So basically all of it but $8,000 a year. He even said, I do not make a special bequest to my beloved foster mother, Julie W. Shepard, knowing full well that through this bequest she will obtain all the benefits thereof without the worry and care incident to possession of the property itself. He also makes Shepard the executor. Ah. Which seems kind of like a bad idea to have the executor also be the person who inherits everything. It's, yeah. Now, the estate is pretty much doubled at this point. And so there's, there's just a lot here. And the reason for the $8,000 a year, if he were to die before he and Isabel could get married, was he wanted to give her something, but he didn't want to give her it all just yet because he didn't want some other fellow spending his money. But basically, some other fellow spending this money is the theme of this inheritance in particular. Yeah. <laughs> it's been through person after person, family to family to family. It's, it's a very strange trail to follow. So I have some of the origins of the curse. 
Yes, yes, get into that. Yes, please. So this goes back to the 19th century. There was a great big mansion in England which had a ton of art and antiques. So oral tradition says that these riches had come in on ships from China, Africa, other exotic locations. And then these objects were property of a nobleman. He passed away and it went to his widow. So the widow later married a squire by the name of William Hickling. Another William. Another William. So this was super frowned upon because he was a squire. He was not nobility and he should not be entitled to that at all. Marrying a commoner is ugh. <laughs> Great sensation. So they pack up all their stuff and they sail to America. And that's how it came over to Ottawa, Illinois. Mrs. Hickling died pretty shortly after they arrived in Illinois. And then William Hickling, the squire turned millionaire, married again. She, he married Sarah Gensler. So these are some of the names that you had mentioned. So the Sarah Gensler thing actually has a bit of a side tale. There was another person involved by the name of Anton Kircher. He was a nurse in the Hickling home in the late 1870s. So he says that when Hickling was around 75, he was sick, bedridden, and had had several angry conversations with Sarah because Sarah had changed his will so the fortune went to her. <laughs> so according to Anton Kircher, Sarah said, well, I know somebody who could cure you of your illness. She called the doctor to the house. The doctor gave him some pills. And three days later, he was dead. <laughs> money will make you do weird things. So now Sarah has the money. So Sarah establishes herself in society. She ha eventually hires a personal secretary, William McClintock. So yeah, that was that was the fun of it. Is all sorts of marriages and mysterious deaths, and also that it's all Williams, all Williams. We don't know the name of the person who first held the fortune, but then we have William Hickling, William McClintock, and then he names his son William. So William, McClintock I bet the first Jr. guy was also William. Yeah, I bet he was too, and William Shepard, and just all these, just so many freaking too, Williams, too many Williams, frankly. Yeah. So they officially announced their engagement in July 1924. And he's really straddling the line between childhood and adulthood in, in a way that we'd kind of recognize today. He's still living at home. That's technically his house anyhow. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's his house. It's not even just technically. It is his house. He owns it. And the shepherds are living there too. The thing is, though, that even though there were plenty of rooms, he's sharing a room with William Shepard. That's creepy. Strange. It's very strange. Basically what happened was Billy wanted to turn his bedroom into a game room of sorts with like a pool table and stuff so he could have friends over. And I guess Julia kept kicked William out of the room because of his snoring. So for some reason they were put together. I don't know why. Again, there's plenty. Really weird. It's really weird. And, and Shepard insisted on sleeping closest to the door too, which is a little bit monitoring your comings and goings, you know? Mm-hmm. It is the fall of 1924, and one thing I have learned with this case is that fall is, for some reason, oyster season. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but fall, 
I literally saw oyster season uh, coming up in, in some newspapers where they have tons of oyster recipes. <laughs> oh, guess what? <laughs> We're going to talk about oysters. Oh, my God. I, I knew the recipe I picked out, as soon as I saw it, I knew. Yep. That's it. It was, it was vomit at first sight. Good. Looking forward to it. <laughs> so in the fall, Billy starts feeling ill. He didn't really let it slow him down socially. He still went out and about and was getting home in the wee hours. Educationally, though, his classes were the first thing to go whenever he wasn't feeling well. <laughs> I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised at all. and I can't blame him. Uh, now, the summer, the summer, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I can talk. I can say the right words. Words are hard. I they understand. are hard. Hair and hand, and then we've got summer and Sunday. Ugh. So... Sunday before Thanksgiving, and Isabel puts her foot down. Because Billy is running a high fever, she doesn't think he should be out and about running around, so she takes him back to his house and sends him off to bed. William Shepard then takes her home, because remember, they always used Billy's the car. car. Uh, the conversation they have, Virginia McConnell relates to us, and it is weird. On the way, he spoke to her of an oddly intimate subject. Billy's bowels. Oh. Billy was careless in this matter, he said, because he was frequently busy doing something and presumably didn't stop to relieve himself when he should and didn't always eat the right things. He had a tendency to get constipated, so Shepard regularly gave him a laxative. In fact, he had given him one that very night. Shepard seemed to be instructing Isabel to continue this practice after their marriage. We who love him must take care of him in this way. That's quoted as like William Shepard saying that. Isabel thought it a strange and embarrassing conversation. I'm with Isabel. I am too. Like, he is a, a grown-ass man-child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am not responsible for his poos. Yes. Uh, I can tell you that I have never once had a conversation with any of my in-laws about my husband's bowels. It's just never come up. <laughs> and uh, I have. <laughs> I'm not. For some reason, I'm not shocked. <laughs> I have. I'm not shocked. But um, we all understand that I am not going to help in any way, but I will make fun of him. Oh, Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta. So, yeah, it's it's definitely, it's a weird thing to talk about. And Julia's being kind of weird, too. She's being kind of hovery. She claims that Billy will only accept food if she's serving it to him. They're being very strict with when and how often and for how long Isabel can visit. It just seems like they've really, like, taken control. Now, towards the end of the week, the doctor is starting to think that this is typhoid fever. He had the, the fever I mentioned before. He also had started experiencing delirium. His pulse and his respiration were high. You know, a, a picture is starting to clarify here. So the doctor got him tested by a specialist. And on December 1st, they got the results back, positive for typhoid fever. The symptoms, Virginia McConnell tells us, uh, high fever, often as high as 103 degrees, which is what Billy's was, headaches, stomach pains, and either constipation, mostly in adults, or diarrhea, mostly in children. In more serious cases, like Billy's, the patient will experience delirium and intestinal hemorrhaging. Yikes. Yeah, it's not uh, super fun, but if you tested early enough, and you tested positive early enough, there was actually some sort of, like, antidote? Some sort of treatment they could use that was 
you know, the earlier the better. But it was kind of too late, apparently. McConnell, in her book, says that there was a typhoid epidemic sweeping the area at the time, and that the doctor should have known this and maybe gotten on top of this sooner. It took eight days to get the diagnosis. So they, they weren't... Yeah, it's a lot of wasted time. It really is, and a lot of time for the, the illness to take hold. Later on in the press, there is a typhoid epidemic mentioned, but it hadn't shown up in the local papers much besides one case. It's really starting now. Essentially, he's practically patient zero. Maybe there was an epidemic in one particular area, but it's still there were four times as many typhoid cases the previous year yeah. as that year. So it wasn't like typhoid was particularly horrible that year. It was actually had relented a bit. They were, at this point, blaming oysters. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about some oyster things soon. I'm going to gross you out with the recipe later, but before we get there, I have to gross you out about oysters. So, but... Already done. Billy's still sick and feverish, so let's, let's stay on him for a few minutes. Isabel and Billy started talking about, you know, getting married. We were going to get married in February. It's December now. He's sick. And so they were like, maybe we should just get married ahead of schedule just to get it done and over with. And so that, you know, she'll be protected. And so that, you know, in case anything happens, so that they'll have been married. Now, William Shepard told Isabel when she first broached the idea that uh, both parties had to be present to get the license. Obviously, Billy's not going anywhere right now. But she happened to have some experience in this area because her brother-in-law had gone to get his marriage license for, to marry her sister, all by his uh, little old self. So she was like, no, I'm pretty sure that's not the case. And he's like, oh, well, it's it's new. Mm. <laughs> they just changed that rule. Yeah, yeah, I just, I know all about it, because, you know, I know all the things. Shepard was like, well, don't you want a big wedding? And she's like, I'd prefer it if the groom was alive, you know? And it's it, there's another weird aspect to it in that William Shepard and Julia Shepard had married kind of under similar circumstances. Like it was like a, a almost deathbed wedding. And he always said that like she saved his life. So it's weird that he's objecting to this so much. And uh, we know why he's objecting. To well, it. from her eyes, she's just like, this is weird. But yes, we know why. <laughs> we know why. So she is hanging around. Isabel's trying to see Billy, but they, he really doesn't let her see him much. Shepard's keeping her company and being a weirdo. I don't know, maybe it was just a distractor or something. He's telling her all this random miscellaneous stuff, talking like random trivia, telling a story of Billy coming to him for pills a full week prior to the onset of his illness and saying, I am coming down with typhoid. Mm-hmm. Sure he is. Yeah, well, I mean... I gave him pills with typhoid in <laughs> before he got typhoid. <laughs> yeah, that's how that happened. But, you know, he would know. William Shepard would know because he'd, quote, made quite a study of typhoid. I bet he did. And uh, I have this from... Been doing experiments for three weeks. <laughs> right? Uh, maybe even years. This is uh, Virginia McConnell saying, What he did not explain was why, if he and Billy had had a conversation about typhoid a full week before Billy became ill, and if he had made such a study of the disease as he had claimed... He did not tell the doctor about this. Basically like, okay, so you knew who he had typhoid all along and you didn't say to the doctor or to literally anyone. And even, you know, ha having discussed the constipation with her and constipation being a mm -hmm. symptom of typhoid and 
Virginia McConnell says, the answer, of course, is that Billy most likely did not know that he had typhoid and never made any such statement. But Darl Shepard knew it. Darl. 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 So McConnell also points out that not only did William Shepard not tell anyone, Billy, aside from supposedly mentioning to William Shepard that he had typhoid, didn't bother to tell the doctor attending him, which you would think he would. Why would he just tell his uncle and then be like, okay, I don't need to tell anyone else. Done. Just my little secret, I guess. But Shepard was sure talking about typhoid a whole bunch. Before mentioning typhoid to Isabel in that little conversation, he uh, went to the bank and told a bank officer, hey, Billy has typhoid. He said the same to one of Billy's nurses around the time. This was before the diagnosis. Yeah, that is suspect. He's, uh, he's really attached to this whole idea of him having had typhoid. And he did have typhoid, but yeah, it's, it's strange. I wonder how he knew. Yeah. Well, Isabel was not really taking this. She actually went downtown, I guess, probably, and got a marriage license on her own on December 2nd. On Tuesday, Miss Pope obtained a license to marry McClintock. He had been gravely ill, but had shown a slight improvement. They had been engaged since June, her parents said last night, but they would not explain on whose advice the the girl applied for the license. And then there's a bit about how the shepherds didn't have any uh, objection, and they were preparing to have this ceremony with Isabel marrying him in his sickbed. And she really is, like, trying. This is, this is her idea, like, and, and it's kind of inspired by William Shepard. She's like, I can save him, you know, this, this will save him. Yeah, because he'll have the, something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, he can, he can fight with that knowledge. The shepherds, despite what they said later, were pretty pissed and locked her out of the house. But then later on, they, they just blamed it on the nurse and the cook. <laughs> Like, they're they're kind of petty bitches. Billy is really not doing well at all. Typhoid fever is a pretty brutal disease. And he's got a really, just, really brutal case of it. It's, It's just ravaging him. And so early the morning of December 4th, the shepherds summon Isabel to come over because Billy is dying. She gets to the house, and the doctor takes her to Billy and declares him dead right then at 2.30 a.m. But uh, a servant says he was dead already when they called Isabel. So Of course. They of are course. not going to let her see him if he has any breath left in him, because then they could get married. Then he could say, I do. Yes. The newspaper says, uh, death once more has snatched the McClintock millions from the heir who was about to enjoy them. This time the victim is William M. McClintock, who came into his inheritance only last April when he was 21, and uh, goes on to talk about how he was going to uh, marry Isabel Pope, his most intimate friend since they were schoolmates. But there will be no wedding ceremony. Instead, there will be a funeral. His ushers for the wedding can be his pallbearers, and that's what they do, which is one of the more heartbreaking things I've ever had to read. Yeah. It's, it, it, so much lost... And stolen hope is in that sentence. His ushers were his pallbearers. Yeah. There's just... there's Like his groomsmen, yeah. Yeah. Isabel uh, faints at the burial. Uh, has a hard time managing that because she's brokenhearted. And he is buried next to his parents. The newspapers are about this time calling him the millionaire orphan. 
And once again, uh, there's a lot of attention, but he this time he's not around. So, of course, the money is an immediate question. The shepherds say that according to the will, they inherit most of it. And a pastor backs that up with a letter that Billy wrote him while at Dartmouth, which is kind of a strange letter. I would not have mother worried for anything, the letter said. I hope that I will be able someday to show appreciation for what she has done for me. No fellow ever had wiser or more loving parents, even though they are not of my own blood. If anything should ever happen to me, it would be my main wish that mother and dad, Mr. and Mrs. Shepherd, should benefit by anything I might have. Why is a 20-year-old writing about his last wishes to a, a pastor? It, it's such a strange thing to do. Just personally, I, I, I don't see the, the reasoning behind it. At, at 20 years old, he's out partying all the time. He's having fun. He's playing pool, you know. He's hanging out with his girlfriend. He's not thinking about death, or he shouldn't be. In a way, it makes sense. So this fortune was considered to be cursed. Yeah. And so he knew that he was coming into the fortune in a few more months when he turned 21. True. And he might have had inklings of some other things that were going on. Some other, uh, I don't know, young deaths that happened around him. Yeah, yeah. did seem like... uh... Loss really followed him around as a child. So it's just, I mean, I guess I get it. He has a, a whole different perspective on, on death and mortality, having experienced what he's experienced and being the inheritor of this particular fortune. Um, so I get it, but it's just so weird. Like, I would never think to do that. Or, you know, if this is on his mind, why is he writing to a pastor and not actually just making the damn will? Like, he did eventually, yes, but, like, literally on his birthday. In case an accident were to befall him before his birthday, because I think that legally he had to wait until his birthday yeah. to make that will go into play, but this way he has his wishes in writing. I wonder what would have happened if he had not come of age before, if he had died before he was 21. Then it would have gone to his legal guardian. I guess so. Next of kin. Yeah, true. So on January 1st, 1925, the newspapers report that uh, the case might be dropped. Quote, there's no evidence to incriminate divulged. But there's also reports saying that they're going to exhume Billy's body from the Oakwoods Cemetery. William Shepard gets a phone call from the papers and he tells them Billy died, quote, a natural death. And there is no reason for an investigation. As soon as somebody says that. I'm like, investigate. Dig. <laughs> Dig. They also have a pathology professor from Northwestern speaking on their behalf. And he says, quote, The post-mortem examination of the body of William Nelson McClintock revealed a perfectly typical case, textbook case, of typhoid fever in a very severe form in which death resulted from hemorrhages into the intestines. Oh, that's not pleasant. No. Two columns over from this in the newspaper is the headline, Typhoid Cases Total 99 Since Late November. Yeah, there may not have been a widespread epidemic, but there was a lot of it concentrated Mm -hmm. in one very short span of time. The blame was going to oysters. Billy had gotten some oysters at the Windermere House, which is like kind of like a spinoff of a classic Chicago hotel, on November 3rd. 
onset was around November 21st, so 18 days. And the incubation period, according to the Centers for Disease Control, is 6 to 30 days. It says the onset of illness is insidious with gradually increasing fatigue and a fever that increases daily from low grade to 102 to 104 by the third or fourth day of the illness. So not super fun. But when he had the oysters, so did Isabel, her cousin, and her cousin's fiance, none of them got ill. But because of this, you know, especially since there's been a death, they do trace the oysters and they are Eastern oysters. And uh, here we go. Let's find out where they came from and what's nearby. Mm. I have a feeling I'm going to love this. You're going to love it. Attachés of the department dispatched to New York discovered that quantities of oysters shipped to Chicago were taken from the Raritan and Princess Babe's beds, which lie in close proximity to the mouth of the Great Passaic Valley sewer, discharging more than 100 million gallons of sewage daily. Yum. Yeah. And everybody loves eating those bad boys raw. Uh, <laughs> now, the Chicago Health Commissioner says almost all the cases represent wealth or an association with wealth. The proportion who lived or occasionally ate at exclusive hotels or restaurants is about 90% of the total. We have 99 cases of the disease. The normal expectancy for this period would be about 20 cases. So it's really hitting hard, and uh, dear God. And oysters are so, so popular. And yeah, especially among the, the upper crust, you know, in this time period. There's oyster soup. There's oyster cocktail. There's fried oysters. Oyster stuffing. Oyster is uh, apparently, back then, the most popular forcemeat for stuffing turkey. And uh, do you hate the word forcemeat as much as I do? I do. It's. It, I don't like that. Are, are we suddenly like doing something non-consensual to the turkey? I mean, I think we always <laughs> well, were. Well, yeah, we always were. You're right about that. Yeah, no, there's, there's no suddenly about it. Yeah, like I put a whole stick of butter up there, <laughs> ladies and gents, and I, I promise you that turkey does not enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's such a weird phrase, but it's just gross. That's uncomfortable. Force it's, meat. Force meat. Yeah, I see. I see it in quite a few recipes. Yeah, Thanksgiving. I'm bombarded with uh, old timey recipes of that include force meat. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. All right. Moving on. I don't want to hear that word again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna make it the subtitle of the episode. There's a lot of reports that the coroner is gonna rule this not murder because they found no poison. The coroner does rule that it's typhoid fever complicated by a secondary internal intestinal hemorrhage. Now, this investigation is going on, and the shepherds are already like, we're not going to take this. The chief justice of the municipal court, Harry Olson, is pushing for more investigation, and they start to threaten, kind of subtly threaten him, like a subtweet. William Shepard says, I expect to take action to expose the motives of those who prompted this attack on me. Yeah, but do you know who Harry Olson was? Harry Olson was, A, a friend of the McClintocks, might have even been engaged to Emma McClintock at one point before she was actually married, and the brother of a man who had died three years prior after visiting with the Shepherds, a doctor. Mm-hmm. Their family doctor, Oscar Olson. Yeah. Uh, Harry Olson ever since then had been like, yeah, something's not quite right. And so now he's kind of taking his chance. 
So he explains it this way. Billy visited my brother two days before my brother's death. Dr. Olson was then recovering from a slight attack of ptomaine poisoning. He was declared out of danger. The next day, after Billy had visited with Dr. Olson for several hours, the shepherds called for the first time in six years. They brought my brother fruit and asked if Billy had been talking with my brother the day before. I may add here that my brother had often told Billy he should assume control of his own affairs as soon as possible. At the time of my brother's death, as they were when Billy died, the shepherds were living off Billy's money in his home and eating his food. The shepherds remained at my brother's home for several hours, and just before they left, Mr. Shepherd was in the room with my brother alone, with the door almost closed for some moments. The doctor's death occurred the day after Shepherd had called on him. The doctor became rapidly worse after the visit. We even feared suicide at that time from poisoning because his illness had not warranted such a change. I do not know what we will find in my brother's body. Three years is a long time, and I will not be satisfied until an examination is made. So he wants to exhume his brother's body. He Mm -hmm. also wants to exhume Emma McClintock. Billy's mom. Billy's mom. There is uh, some suspicion surrounding her death here as well. Yeah, as happy as the the newspapers were to be like, oh, she died of a broken heart. Uh, I think a lot of people were like, that doesn't sound fucking right. Yeah, it was definitely a little, a little suspicious. She had died pretty soon after the shepherds came to, uh, to work for her. And again, like I mentioned, he knew Mrs. Shepherd, Judge Harry Olson did. And quote, he said the burial was so hurried that he refused to act as a pallbearer. So he definitely clearly had some suspicions from the beginning, but... William Shepard calls all this the ravings of a disordered mind. Mm. So Harry Olson also brings up questions as to the authenticity of Billy's will. Isabel is also talking. She's telling the state's attorneys that she'd been asked not to visit the Shepard home to see her fiancé, and that the Shepherds turned cool on her after they were told that she wanted to marry Billy while he was sick on his deathbed. I don't, I don't think they had a fantastic relationship together. I think she saw some things that maybe Billy needed distance to be able to see. He started to kind of recognize that things weren't quite normal or optimal when he was away at Dartmouth. Kind of got more of a clear-eyed view of what was going on with his guardians and started to feel like maybe he shouldn't trust them. And there were people telling him he shouldn't trust them. Mm-hmm. Like his own doctor, for crying out loud. Shepard is so sure of the outcome that he's not even going to stick around town for this. He just heads off to Albuquerque, where his wife is, says, you know, my attorney will take care of all my libel suits because, you know, I'm going to file libel against everybody who said a word about me. They exhume Emma McClintock's body six years after her death. No, it is not six years. It has been more than six years. Why do I have six years? Um, it's, she was 1909, this is 1904, 15 years! There you go. (laughs) After her death, and they did an examination, they found enough mercury to have killed two people. The coroner released a formal statement saying that, uh, that was death by intentional homicide. Now, the inquest was supposed to be closed in late January, but they extended it another month, The chief of police said that he had found, quote, important information which deserves careful investigation. And then some stuff comes out, these letters that were written to a mysterious young woman, Miss Estelle Gelling. She was a nurse. 
and they were from one William Shepard. There were four letters in total, and they were holding them pretty close to the vest, but the nurse had handed two over to the coroner and said that she had the other two and that she'd kept just these out of all the many, many letters he'd written her during the seven years of their relationship. Ooh. Yeah. Now, for his part, William Shepard says he honestly can't remember what's in the letters, even if they were love letters or not. That's a little bit... <laughs> that's a little I bit sus. I don't know what they would have been about. I have no idea. He just said, well, you know, I, I kind of knew her as an acquaintance. She basically just threatened me for money all the time, and I told her to go away. And she says, no, they were love letters, and, quote... I had to put her in here because of all this. He was a silly old man looking for sympathy. You know how a man gets sometimes when he is getting fat and tired of his wife. She's got a mouth on her. Damn. I like her. I think they, they call her in some places the sunshine girl because he addresses her as precious sunshine. I like her. Yeah. All this stuff about the letters is swirling in the news. And I'm going to read some excerpts from these letters to you in a moment. But first, you're probably wondering, well, what's Julia Shepard's reaction to this? And the answer to that would be disturbing. Because he tells, literally tells, I can't, the court, the papers in public says, not only does she not know about these alleged love letters of mine, but she does not know of the inquiry into Billy McClintock's death. I have kept all newspapers from her. He also won't allow her to see visitors. Wow. Yeah, that's... Uh, an abuser. Yes. And a narcissist, likely. Yes. That's not good. I'll read you uh, some bits and pieces here. This was from uh, November 1919. Precious sunshine. I have about 10 minutes on my hands, and I know of no better way to spend them than by writing to the dearest and sweetest girl in the whole world. So I write to you. It seems ages since I saw you, and I am getting desperate. I need you so much for you put new life into me and brighten the world for me. Uh, then actually mentions uh, Dr. Olson in here. Uh, I have an appointment with Dr. O today, so I will be at the H blank sometime during the day, and I shall try to get a peep at least at you. I must admit that my dreams of you are most pleasant indeed. He calls her his dream girl. Uh, he says, I want to kidnap you and carry you away where I could have you with me always, someday when dreams come true. Now, my sweet Estelle, I must close for this time. Take care of your dear self, sweet dream girl, and the very best wishes and the boundless love of your D. Miss Gelling explained that D referred to darling. Darl. 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 So, yeah, it's definitely... There's something there, uh, I will say for sure. Yes. yes. He's, he's very much uh, talking about her dear, sweet voice and how she just gives him so much new spirit. And I love my darling Estelle more than life, he tells her. So uh, he's probably glad that he kept Julia in the dark and won't allow her newspapers because these are in the public record so <laughs> well eventually what's going to happen though is she's going to be allowed to talk to people and they're going to tell her yeah i think they probably will so they have testimony from a lab technician who says that he knew shepherd shepherd used to visit him in his laboratory in 1919 and 1920 
I think I'm, I'm go, getting into more trial stuff. This case is kind of sprawling in places, but they did get indicted for murder. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and arrested. Well, and there was there was another exhumation too because they did exhume Dr. Olson. Oh, what do you have from that? Yeah, yeah. So Harry was was pushing this, and they got Dr. Olson out too. So we have Billy's mom who has all of that mercury, and that mercury poison is usually administered ten to fifteen days prior to death. Hmm. So that was about two weeks before she died that somebody had given her that, and then. Olsen was last seen alive with William Darling Shepard, and the uh, coroner's inquest uncovered a, a bunch of interesting facts with that. My notes have them tied together, like it was done around the same time. Yeah. So Shepard was seen giving a drink to Emma McClintock before she died. Shepard had once had a partner in a drugstore business in Salina, Kansas, and that partner also died under mysterious circumstances. Hmm. Uh, Oscar Olson, Dr. Olson, he had toxic levels of mercury as well. And that there was a, uh, was it a nurse? I gotta find it in my notes. But there was somebody that reported that William had reached out to try to buy Oh, it was typhoid germs, not mercury. I thought I had a note about the mercury, but um, Shepard had offered to buy typho typhoid germs. I can't talk either. <laughs> oh, my God. From a man named Charles Feynman for $100,000. Oh, uh, yes. He kind of is, like, lurking on the periphery of this case, that Feynman guy. So, yeah, this actually gets to court beyond the inquest. Now, a lab... Tech testifies that Shepard used to visit him in his lab in 1919 and 1920. There was typhoid on hand there and also testified that Shepard had looked for ways of getting typhoid germs and apparently found them, uh, found a way in, in Dr. Feynman. You were supposed to get some sort of permission or there was needed to be some clearance, but Judge Olson noted, quote, it's easier to get typhoid germs than pistols. Which is a whole different world. And horrifying, yeah. frankly. The doctor who testified got visited by a private investigator uh, who wanted him to go over to some girl's house on the south side. And uh, the doctor was like, mm, I'm going to call the judge about this. And the PI admitted that he was tricking the doctor, uh, but said he was sure that there was not going to be any harm come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Everything's real shady. And so they also had testimony from Famine. I do have him here. A doctor and medical diploma mill operator. <laughs> I guess uh, they can go hand in hand if you decide not to have any ethics. Uh, he said on the stand that he and William Shepard had plotted together to kill Billy. Oh. Yeah. He did say that. There's a bunch of testimony from servants of the Shepherds who claim that Shepard had a secret laboratory in his home. Unfortunately, as McConnell tells us, the police were just incredibly lackadaisical and just really didn't give a shit during their investigation, so they didn't really find anything. Shepard did actually take the stand, and I'm so disappointed because it really was not the, the drama show that I wanted. Oh, it was boring. It was really boring. The state's attorney really did let an opportunity slip by him. 
Yeah, I, like didn't try to bait him or anything at all. It was all like yes or no questions. And he, no, I did not. He could no, have gone for the not. jugular and he just chose to hold back. And basically his, he was just trying to make Shepard's character look bad. But that doesn't help with reasonable doubt, you know? Yeah. And one of the attorneys spent most of his closing statements just attacking the defense attorneys instead of actually... What a waste. Yeah, absolute waste. The jury goes to deliberate. Their first vote was uh, seven for guilty and five for not guilty. The not guilty votes seemed to stem from reasonable doubt as to the origin of the typhoid. So not whether he actually killed Billy, but where he got the typhoid that he killed him with. Even though you had a guy on stand that was like, yeah, I gave it to him. Yeah, basically. Like, they, we know, we know this. Over five hours of deliberation, the jury took six ballots, and then they returned with a verdict. And I love this little bit that um, Virginia McConnell gives us, this, this view into the courtroom. Before letting the jury back into the courtroom, however, Judge Lynch had the bailiff get the courtroom back into a semblance of order. Spectators and reporters had made themselves at home, lounging on desks, smoking, eating lunch, and discarding litter on the floor. The bailiff also warned against any demonstrations or disorder when the verdict was read. But uh, unfortunately, the judge didn't really have control of his courtroom from the very beginning because somehow the verdict leaked to the press. So they were all like ready and it also made it somehow a bigger deal. There were photographers trying to line up their shots. It was just absolute chaos and the courtroom going completely nuts. So the jury comes in and they give their verdict and it is not guilty. They acquitted him. Now, William Shepard's parents are still alive at this point. Not today, right now. (laughs) (laughs) And they're contacted by the press and they say that they knew everything was going to be all right. Well, I guess it's his mom and his stepfather, I think. His stepfather was a spiritualist. And just recently, he'd gotten a visitation from former President Benjamin Harris telling him that there was no reason to worry. Because that's all former presidents have to do. Really? That is to visit people in Kleenex form and, <laughs> uh, and, and tell them about what's coming. It's really a boring existence being a dead former president. I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> I guess somehow he was, Benjamin Harris was related to his wife, the, the mom's side of the family or something. I don't know, but. Sure he was. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to try to logic this out because the logic is not present. It was, it was probably just somebody's like exaggerating mom that was like, oh yeah, you're descended from royalty. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Right? I'm a baroness. So after the trial, Isabel went back into teaching you know, once the hubbub had died down here. and But there was still the issue of the will to deal with between Shepard and Isabel and then also uh, 10 to 11 cousins who, uh, they were found. And if the will was nullified, then they'd inherit everything. They'd essentially be the, the new next of kin. So the matter was expected to take about 10 years to untangle, but it apparently only took about four to five, and ended up in a settlement agreed on by all parties out of court. Some numbers that were in the paper then were 450000 going to Shepard, minus 100000 to cover all the legal fees that they had racked up in these five years. 
Isabel got 350000 and then the cousins equally split 350000 among them. Now, 350000 would today uh, be $20 million when received as compensation. That's not bad, but Virginia McConnell, she has lower numbers, probably more realistic than what the papers had after, like, attorney fees and stuff. She thinks 250000 for the Shepherds, 125000 each for Isabel and the Passel of Cousins, respectively. But what I was really interested in was the timing of the settlement. <laughs> you want to talk about that? I can if you want. Go ahead. So the timing of the settlement is right around the time that Isabel Pope got married. Yes, I would assume the marriage happened very soon after the settlement. Yep, so that was... That was Definitely the reason for the settlement that, that she agreed to just take the money and go. So she married Melvin Veter, and she and Melvin and Billy were all close friends. They had been schoolmates, yeah. He was like a little bit ahead of them in school, I think. One other issue with the timing of the settlement. Now, they got married on September 29th, Melvin and Isabel. And um, do you know what was two weeks later? 1929, Black Tuesday. Oh. Stock market crash, beginning of the Great Depression. Oh. Yeah. So coming to money, and then two weeks later, every stock in there is like <laughs> tank. Well, Isabel and Melvin were actually on their honeymoon in Europe at the time. <laughs> so they missed oh, all that. Poor thing. Jeez. Now, uh, they had three girls and one boy together. They were still wealthy and connected enough that, uh, because, yeah, Melvin was like a, he was an heir to a big fortune as well. So, yeah, their daughters were debutantes. They had their coming out parties and stuff. Uh, And by the time Melvin died on Christmas Day, 1964, they had five grandchildren. Now, she may have remarried in 1968. It was hard to say because... It was just, if I remember correctly, she was just listed as uh, Mrs. Melvin Veter. The thing about that is, is that there would be two Mrs. Melvin Veters because they named their son Melvin as well, and he had married. Yeah, so I, I had that she did end up remarrying and ended up as Isabella Pope Harrington. Okay, all right, yeah. See, that's what I thought, too. I tried to find find a grave, and but I did get the information from Virginia McConnell's book. Um, that she died at age 94 uh, at her own home in California in 1997. Yep, that's actually, I matched that June 5th, 1997, Santa Clara County, California. Mm-hmm. Now, it's got to be interesting growing up with somebody who's had this experience, this very unique experience and loss. And her daughters did tell McConnell, they, they told the story about how she said, well, Billy went to college and then all of a sudden he started kind of thinking things weren't right, but she was never really specific about it. She didn't really talk about the case until their father passed away. There was at one point when the Chicago Tribune had like a retrospective on the case in 1950, which I could not find. It's mentioned in Virginia McConnell's book that issue must not be digitized or something. I could not find it because we have the Chicago Tribune on newspapers.com. 1950 is there. I don't know. Yeah, um, I did not see that. 
Yeah, I didn't either because I was like, that would have been really useful. <laughs> like those retrospectives usually have all the details that you can't get in the moment when it's like two days before they're even deliberating, you know? But yeah, finally, like she talked about it a little bit then just because she kind of figured some attention was going to be coming and better for them to be forewarned. She always seemed very sad about it, naturally. I don't think that's the kind of thing that leaves you losing a first love like that and then having to deal with all the aftermath. She had found it hard to get into the details, but she did finally talk about that and how it was kind of like a seminal moment in her life. Over on the Shepherd side, uh, I did find in 1935 some foreclosure proceedings against the Shepherds for the McClintock home. Good. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Lots of F words out of me today. That's okay. You're allowed. <laughs> I think it was the same home that they lived in. But Virginia McConnell has them moving out of the house that they shared with Billy in, like, uh, 1930-ish, I think she said. So it could have been an, an, another house that they bought and then were not able to stay above water on. Uh, so, yeah, he had partly mortgaged the house in 1993 to William R. Mole. Another William. <laughs> There's so many of them. It's funny that it's a story about wills. It is. It is. Okay. okay. I'm glad, I'm glad got, that I, I said I'm that. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm glad you picked it up. Uh, so, yes, Shepard died in 1942 of uremia. He was 67. In, he outlasted Judge Olson by seven years. Uh, Olson died in 1935. I approve of him trying to find justice for his family, but I'm also fine with him dying because he was a big fan of eugenics and was about to have someone to really cheer on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Attorney Reichman, he died in 1948. So when William Shepard died, Julie Shepard received all of his portion of the inheritance. So how much was left? According to McConnell, 340 shares of stock three real estate parcels, and under $600 in cash. Wow. That would be $21,000 received as compensation today. There's so, no fortune left to be cursed with. All these people are able to live to old age because there's no fortune left. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, some of the other people did get to live to old age. Julie Shepard, she passed in 1970. Uh, so uh, she was 92. She definitely... Did not have to deal with the, the fatal fortune, as is the title of McConnell's book. Um, and McConnell, at the end, uh, she does a, a really beautiful job of summing up and sort of analyzing every aspect of the case in order to come to a conclusion of, were they guilty? And her conclusion is, there's just too many coincidences. There's just too many things and too many things that weren't investigated. And her conclusion is, yeah, we pretty much know it was oh, absolutely. committed by the shepherds. Well, and you know what? It, it even makes me, it makes me pissed at our lawyer friend, Raymond. Raymond? Rickman. Rickman. I knew it was an R. It makes me pissed at him that he was not more involved and he didn't fight harder. Because this whole thing was suspect. I really feel like they killed Billy's mom. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, because she was, frankly, she she was, she was out there and, and she was now a widow. So she didn't have a husband to protect her. She was a single mom, so all of her focus is going to be on her child and not her own safety, because that's not going to be her concern. 
And she has these new friends that just storm into her life. And they're like, we'll take care of you forever. And then that person has a friend that was like, oh, I was there. She said that she totally wanted us to take care of, uh, of her son. Yeah, like she, that's what her deathbed wish was. It's like the whole thing is suspect as hell. It really is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's just so much shadiness here that uh, they should make this a tree and plant it. It would keep us all cool. Yeah. But I, I definitely think the shepherds were the... Uh, I'm glad they lost the fortune. The fortune is no longer cursed. Yes. And the shepherds are dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, speaking of cursed, oyster salad. Oh, yeah. You're going to do this to me. <laughs> uh-huh. Two cans of cove oysters, one cup cracker crumbs, six medium-sized cucumber pickles chopped fine, eight hard-boiled eggs... Save enough of whites to grate over the top. Add celery seed to taste. Use this for the dressing. Yolks of three eggs, one half cup vinegar, one teaspoon salt, half teaspoon, sorry. One half teaspoon yellow mustard, two and one half tablespoon sugar. Cook until thick, let cool, and pour over salad. Yuck. Yeah. I don't think we can call it a salad when it's like... Eggs and pickles and oysters. Yes. Canned oysters. Yes. I don't know if that's better or worse, frankly, because I am not a huge oyster person at all. Uh, ew. Ew, ew. No thanks. What's happening with these cracker crumbs, too? Oh, you put cracker crumbs in everything. I mean, I don't. <laughs> well, back then they did. I like Oh, yeah, like a filler. Yeah. A filler, a topping. Yeah. For texture. Every single casserole had some cracker crumbs on top. <laughs> Don't you know? Oh gosh! So there's your oyster salad. That was in a one of those newspapers that does like a like a recipe competition. So this, was the competition what's grosser than a tuna casserole? You would think, but no. There there was an oyster casserole. So, um, yeah. And this wasn't even the first place. Um, this this was an honorable mention. Well, thank you for that. I'm now no longer hungry. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so that will certainly prevent me from overeating. Uh, I'm just going to think of pickles and oysters and that many freaking boiled eggs. Why so many? <laughs> Why eight hard-boiled eggs? That's excessive. That's a lot. Like, unless it's an Easter egg hunt, that's too many. Or you're giving someone the third degree. <laughs> over, I, I have to, I have to tell the inside joke now because I, I can't be one of those people. Um, over on the Patreon, we had a, a case that Amber told me about where, as part of the interrogation, one of the the methods used in the third degree to try to get this suspect to talk was putting hot boiled eggs in the armpits. In his armpits. Yeah, buddy. I told her I was done. <laughs> <laughs> that broke me. Guess what? He confessed. It's the dot and Jeremy bear me. It broke me. Yeah, you would confess too if somebody was shoving hot eggs under you. What the hell? I'm still just... Uncomfortable. Anyhow, if you want to come over to the Patreon, you should because Amber tells me stories about bizarre things that people do. Yes? Would that count as force meat? Oh, God. That might be force meat. Yep. I'd, I'd say that's force meat. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Full circle. We did it. We tied it all together. So yeah, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Link is in the show notes. And we have a lot of fun 
Uh, I also, I told Amber a story today of a um, Icelandic murder. And so there was lots of fun names. Lots of fun names. Yes. So, um, yeah. And I think, I honestly can't remember, speaking of patrons, I, we might owe a shout out. So I'm going to go through like the last couple people who <laughs> joined the Patreon. Um, and that would be Marie Zimmerman and Lindsay Whittemon. Hi, Marie. Hi, Lindsay. Hello, and welcome. We hope you're enjoying the many, many bonus episodes available there. Some real fun ones. I always kind of look at that as like, oh, our little goofing around memories. <laughs> so, um, don't... You know what? I'm going to stick with don't put hot boiled eggs under people's arms. I'm just going to stick with that. Uh, don't accept... Pills or beverages from somebody you don't really know or trust. And also who maybe is the beneficiary of your will. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. All right. Uh, we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Sources. Okay. My sources are Fatal Fortune, The Death of Chicago's Millionaire Orphan by Virginia McConnell, The Chicago Daily Tribune, Dartlet. Myth Alumni Mag, Find a Grave, Muscatine News Tribune, Ottumwa Assembly Weekly, Courier, Fort Wayne Journal Gazette, Coshocton Daily Times, The Davis Leader, Belleville Daily Advocate, Rock Island Argus, Belvedere Daily Republican, and The Daily Illinois. Oh. Uh, I got BizarreJournal.com, Ancestry.com, Newspapers.com, thank you, Chris, Chris Garcia. Garcia, Weekly Galt, Weekly Galt Gazette, I might have have a misspelling in there, I don't know. The Morning Herald, Rock Island Argus. I'm going to go check the weekly what gazette. Wait, the <laughs> Morning Herald. No, Weekly Galt Gazette. Okay.